This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. again, and welcome to the New Books and Latino Studies, a channel within the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tiffany Gonzalez, and today on the program we have Dr. Phyllis Barragan-Gitz, an assistant professor in the Department of History at Texas A&M University, San Antonio. Dr. Barragan-Gitz is here to discuss her recent book, Reading, Writing, and Revolution, Escuelitas in the Emergence of a Mexican-American Identity, published with the University of Texas Press in 2020. Hi, Phyllis, and welcome to the New Books and Latino Studies. Hi, Tiffany. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Absolutely. It's such a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, so before we dive into your work, can you, t- can you get us started with telling us a little bit about yourself, your personal and professional background? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so I'll begin by saying I'm a first-generation college student. I'm from San Antonio, Texas. Um, when I was growing up, all of my family, extended family, we all lived in the same neighborhood. So uh, I grew up very close to my parents and my siblings, but also my grandparents and my tias and theos and my cousins. Um, we were all basically in walking distance from each other. Um, I worked as a bagger and as a checker at HEB when I was in high school and throughout undergrad. Um, HEB for people who aren't from Texas, who <laughs> was recently named the number one grocery store in the country, according to Food and Wine magazine. So Uh, I think it's kind of funny Um, that to this day, I still remember produce codes, by the way, every time I go into HEB, uh, I don't know why (laughs) those codes just don't go away. Um, And then after I graduated from undergrad, I worked as an assistant teacher in a Montessori school for a few years before pursuing um, grad school. And so I got my master's in history from UT San Antonio and my PhD in American Studies from UT Austin. Um, But one of the most life-changing experiences for me was having my two daughters while I was a doctoral student. Um, And basically potty training a two-year-old and nursing a newborn while researching and writing the dissertation um, really made me question my sanity on more than one occasion. Um, and I know there are many academic mamas and academic papas too out there who know what I mean. Um, but the experience, it, it changed everything for me. It changed the way I approached my work. Um, I should also note that I have a really supportive and loving family that helped me at every step of the way. My dissertation advisor was always very supportive of grad students having families. Uh, she's a herself is a really awesome example of uh, a successful academic mama. Um, And the semester that I graduated with the PhD, I began teaching at Texas A&M San Antonio as a lecturer. And then the following year, my position was converted to a tenure track uh, position. And I had to reapply for it. But thankfully, I got it. That's, I really appreciate that you included the, your HEB story and your motherhood story. And I can totally, I mean, the, the HEB part, how you remember certain things. I've never worked at HEB, but going back to the part that you said that HEB is so well, kind of well known through a lot of, um, throughout the Southwest, um, from a lot of people that move out of Texas and then they move to another area and they're like, I really miss HEB. 
And I mean, it has a lot of good produce. I mean, sometimes the the pre-made meals are great. I mean, it doesn't compete to other grocery stores who I will not mention because I don't want backlash, but <laughs> but it is, it's a great, it's something I miss here. Um, currently I'm in Colorado and then I'll be moving to New Orleans here in a little bit, but I miss H-E-B. It's so, I mean, the product, the product that they have, it's, it's a staple, right? Um, and also how you mentioned about the the produce codes. I mean, that's, <laughs> I worked at Sonic and when I was um, in high school and how I paid for some of my college years is that I worked as a car hop and then I was a system manager, but the things that stay with you of like how to order and the intricate knowledge that is not shared with the public, I think just always stays with a person. I, don't, I mean, for me, Sonic was my first job, but I think that's, I think that's really special. So thank you for sharing that. <laughs> yeah, and, and also your, the motherhood story. I mean, me as a woman, um, I, I mean, I didn't have kids um, in grad school and I still don't have any children, but it's something that I really, am really empathetic about a lot of colleagues and peers that had children during the graduate process. And it's a whole different level. I mean, it's not only the academic stress, but it's the familial stress, right? It's make it or break it. Um, but I'm so happy you had the great, the great support um, that led you to write this fantastic book that we're going to talk about. Um, yeah, thank and so, you so much. You're absolutely. So before um, we actually dive into the, to the body of it, can you talk, tell us a little bit about um, what influenced you to write this history of Las Escuelitas? Yeah, so I stumbled upon this topic. Uh, when I was a grad student, I took this class called Feminism, Modernism, and Radicalism, uh, which is a lot to tackle in one semester, but it was a great class. Um, and so for the seminar paper that we had to write, you know, for the end of the semester, I really wanted to research how those developments intersected on the Texas-Mexico border you know, how feminism, modernism, and radicalism played out on the Texas-Mexico border. And thankfully, like, there were some other scholars who had kind of tackled that. So it wasn't like I was trying to come up with something new at that point. Like, I was really using the paper to try to explore uh, how those things unfolded. And so my research brought me to articles by a woman named Tobithi that um, she published under various pen names uh, in her family's newspaper, which was called La Cronica. It was published in Laredo between 1910 and 1914. And in these articles, or maybe not in all of the ones that I found, but in some of the articles, Idad really advocated for her community to build their own schools, right? And she was calling on them to reach out to uh, women who had received their education and their certifications from universities in Mexico and pay for them to come to Texas and then pay for them to teach. And thrown in there was also um, her lamenting the loss of the Spanish language among ethnic Mexican children, right? Like the rise of Tex-Mex, she saw that as a loss of the, the Spanish language. And so this entire aspect of her argument really fascinated me. And every time I thought about a dissertation topic, I kept going back to that paper. I kept going back to those articles by Jovita Idad. And then in talking to my family about it, I, I found out that my great-grandmother had attended probably multiple escuelitas in Eagle Pass that my um, my grandmother had attended one in San Antonio during the Great Depression. So then the topic just became much more personal. Yeah, and I like how you opened up the uh, your the, the introduction, pardon me, of talking about Rico Vasquez and his Escuelita days because it really lays out of how important it was, right, Las Escuelitas from the late to the uh, first half of the 20th century. Um, and this perspective, right? Not just the personal from yours, but the people that actually attended. And that's, I think you, you really opened that up, right? Really, really, really nice. Um, to talk about your argument, because you're arguing, as you mentioned, you're building on work from other scholars and you, you mentioned um, Guadalupe San Miguel um, uh, and Carlos Blanton, but you, what, what's more uh, different, right? From what you're arguing is that the history of Las Escuritas is, is a history of cultural negotiation, not of just resistance. 
um, that fluctuated over decades. And you use a um, a conceptual framework, right? Um, imaginary citizenship. Can you can, so can you tell us a little bit more of how you're using that conceptual framework within the historiography and how how you build up to the larger statements that you're making within your own um, work? Yeah, sure. So um, as you said, like in a lot of ways, my work is kind of definitely standing on the shoulders of these giants, right? That the the field of Mexican-American educational history, it's a really prominent field because of the amazing work that so many fantastic scholars have been doing. Um, And a lot of that work is really focused on like the public school system, like policy and, and legislation and always very much attuned to acknowledging agency, right, as a central part of the way these scholars approach their work, appro- approach the, their historical subjects. And so the vast majority of them acknowledge Escuelitas in some way. I mean, some a little more in-depth than others, but definitely use them and kind of hold them up as this example of ethnic Mexican agency, right? Because this kind of taking just a brief step back, that in the late 19th century, with the uh, expansion of the public school system throughout Texas, along with that comes this myth that ethnic Mexican children, ethnic Mexican parents, like just the community, ethnic Mexican or communities, I should say, as a whole, uh, don't value education. And so you have the emergence of this prominent field uh, or what becomes a prominent field a hundred years later, right, in 1987 or, or 1980s, 1970s, um, of people trying to counter this myth. Like, that's how pervasive this myth has been. Um, and so basically using Escuelitas as an example, like talking about the public school, talking about legislation and policy, but then looking at Escuelitas as an example of another example of ethnic Mexicans asserting agency, right, in the name of education. And so one of the things that my work does is it puts Escuelitas at the center, um, not necess- not really public schools at the center, although I do have to um, bring in the history of the public school system, but I try to do so while always keeping Escuelitas at the center and then drawing from the larger historical context of, right, the history of a public school system, immigration, uh, progressivism, modernization, the Mexican Revolution, and then once pairing it within that larger context, interpreting the grass new, the grassroots nature of Escuelitas as an indicator like of the extent to which ethnic Mexicans incorporated themselves into U.S. society, right? So looking at the cycles of proliferation, the cycles of decline of these Escuelitas as um, indicators of different tactics that ethnic Mexican use to negotiate and including resist, right? But more broadly, negotiate their lives in the United States, right? And thinking about how education was at the center of that negotiation because, and this is kind of one of my, or this is one of my larger arguments for the books is that education was, and we can also argue remains, um, a vehicle both for oppression and agency, right? So it's used to oppress people, but then people also use it to lift themselves up, right? Um, So I'll talk about now uh, imaginary citizenship that that's a framework that um, Courtney Weekle Mills, she's a childhood studies scholar that she created. And Weekle Mills's work is really focused on Anglo-American children before and after the American Revolution, right? And essentially, she argues that children can ratify national narratives. And I think I'm either quoting or very closely paraphrasing how the way she phrases it. And so she looks at books, um, literacy, and children's relationship to reading to understand exactly how children ratify these national narratives. And so even though the time and the place was vastly different, right, from the study, the work that I was doing, this framework had a really huge impact on how I interpreted these Escuelitas, because for so much of Escuelita history, 
You have the public school system drawing from English-only policies, um, from an Anglo-centric curriculum that's only focused on Americanization. Um, and on the other hand, then, you have escuelitas and their Spanish-only Mexican-centric curriculum. And then caught in the middle were, you know, countless numbers of ethnic Mexican children. Um, and so in each school, then, it wasn't just language, though obviously that itself was quite significant, but what that language and curriculum meant, right? Like what those things represented, the salience of, the significance of national narratives. And so children then uh, being subjected uh, subjected to these two opposing doctrines, so to speak. And so I use the concept of what I call imaginary dual citizenship, then like kind of building off of what uh, Wico Mills uh, created this concept of imaginary dual citizenship to analyze and to understand the significance of um, educational history in general um, and escuelita history specifically to the creation and the formation of a Mexican American identity. And this is throughout, right? Throughout the first half of the 20th century that you talk about, right? The, the evolution of Las Escuelitas. And to begin with the history of Las Escuelitas, you start off by, and you mentioned this earlier, you're de- debunking a myth of what, you know, um, public, the public, the larger public society, not, not ethnic Mexicans, but those in charge, like superintendents, they're writing reports about how Mexicans don't care for education, right? What What's going on? Can you tell us a little bit of what's going on during this time period? And I think it's during the progressive era that's that's challenging and creating these stereotypes about ethnic Mexicans and the value of education for them. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found about that? Yeah, sure. So um, the I'll, I'll just briefly talk about, so public education in Texas, it started with the school law of 1854. And basically because of the compromise of 1850, um, after which her, occurred after the U.S.-Mexico War, after annexation, uh, Texas received $10 million. And so with the school law of 1854, that law stated that they were going to take $2 million of those $10 million and put it in this you know, permanent school fund and use it to build schools. But zero schools were actually ever built with that money. Um, the majority of, well, more than half of that money went to the railroads to encourage them to build more track in the state. And then the rest of it, after the Civil War broke out, <clears throat> excuse me, went to the Confederacy um, to support, you know, the Confederate cause during the Civil War. And so fast forwarding then to after the war, when you get to about 1870, there's maybe three schools, public schools in Texas, I should say. I mean, there, of course, there are escuelitas, there's parochial schools, there's um, Anglo private schools, but the the number of public schools, like what you would consider official public schools, um, there's very very few of them uh, by by 1870. And so, one of the things that the progressive education movement does, one of the big impacts that it has on, on Texas, is building more schools and expanding the system. So. One of the reasons why there were so few schools was because uh, there were lots of disagreements about how to pay for the schools. So in this era, when we think about public education, or today we think about public education, you think it's free education and they provide the books and they provide a bus that picks you up and they provide you know, lunch meals and, and things like that. Um, but in this era, they provided nothing. <laughs> so when the state funded uh, the building of a public school, really what that meant was the state would donate the land to the community and then also donate um, money or supplies to construct the building and then maybe donate some money to pay for um, like impoverished, severely impoverished children or orphans to be able to attend the school. But beyond that, it was up to the community to um, figure out a way to maintain the school? How are you going to pay the teachers? How, who are you going to have a board of directors? Like, how are you going to function? Um, but the catch was you weren't allowed to levy taxes in support of the school, which meant that a lot of these schools had to charge tuition, in which case they weren't actually free schools. So a lot of people 
couldn't attend them. Um, but the progressive education movement, it really kind of changes all of that, right? It's this, this notion that, well, we need a public education system so that we can educate our citizens so that we have, you know, this is a patriotic duty to have educated, informed citizens. And so 1884 then um, is thought to be like Carlos Blanton in his book, uh, Strange Career of Bilingual Education in Texas, looked to the year 1884 as kind of this this year that signals the beginning of the progressive education movement in Texas, because that's the year when the first um, English-only law is passed. And so embedded at you know from the earliest days of this progressive education movement you have this emphasis on english only and americanization and and things of that nature so the superintendents whose uh districts were in south texas on the texas mexico border um they make it abundantly clear like unambiguously unequivocally clear in their reports uh, that while they were progressives, because they were in favor of public education, there was always this question of public education for who, right? Um, so just a, a clarifying point here, the superintendents across the state of Texas, once a year, they had to submit um, an annual report to the state superintendent of public, of public instruction in Austin. And, um, you know, they had to do things like how many desks, how many buildings, how many students, what did you pay the janitor? Like, what do you pay the teachers? I mean, just like these itemized lists of all kinds of expenses and, and keeping track of, you know, the resources and materials that they had in their district. And at the bottom of the reports was this general, general remarks section. So it was just basically these blank lines and they could write whatever they wanted. And, um, for the first chapter of the book, that's really a rich resource because they complain about escuelitas. They complain about their student body um, not caring about education. And I'm, I'm referring to superintendents on the Texas-Mexico border that was like 80% or more um, of the student population was um, ethnic Mexican. And I mean, just beyond complaining, I mean, it over and over and over stating that their students didn't appreciate education, that their parents didn't appreciate what the public school system was trying to do, um, that they would rather send their kids to these Spanish language schools um, than send them to the, the free public school system. So, it, you know, it really opens up, it, it really helps us understand like the origins of this myth that we're still grappling with today, right? Ethnic Mexicans and, and education, um, but also it gives a lot of insight into the progressive movement, right? Of the late 19th, early 20th century. And when we, what do we mean when we talk about progressive? What, like, what does it mean to be um, progressive? Because you, you read the, the general remarks, you read the reports of these superintendents and they are extremely racist, extremely, extremely racist. But yet they, those men were the liberals of their time. And you definitely show the dark side. And I quote that the dark side of the progressive movement, that progressive movement during that time was still very racially charged, discriminatory. Um, and it's, and it's outstanding. Like the irony that you just pointed out, right? These were the progressives of the time with their racially charged language of how they're evaluating ethnic Mexicans and the school system. And that when I, I, I mean, I underlined that when you were talking about that, because that's that's the ironies and the contradictions that we look for as historians when we're writing these studies. Um, before we dive into, um, before I ask you about who the actors were in creating Las Escuelitas, I have a general question. So although your study focuses on Texas, as throughout your research, did you find, did you come across any of those narratives about how they're, um, of Las Escuelitas throughout the Southwest, again, what the larger society is saying about ethnic Mexicans and the purpose of, of Las Escuelitas. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, 
to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Um, now, I found, I found lots of evidence that Escuelitas existed throughout the Southwest. Um, and in fact, when I was a grad student, um, my initial objective for the project, for the dissertation project, was to do um, to write about Escuelitas throughout the Southwest. But it just became so unwieldy that I had to narrow down the focus to Texas to make it manageable. Um, and I think it's a much better project because of it. I think it it would have been, um, especially as I talked about before, having two small children at home at the time, it just, and it would have probably been, you know, too sloppy. Uh, but I found lots of evidence that Escuelitas existed um, throughout the Southwest. I did not look at any super te- superintendent's reports or any of like official state, you know, Department of Education documents in other states throughout the Southwest, but I would in no way be surprised if they were very similar in tone. Yeah, that was something that I wondered when I was reading how it would look for um, other areas outside of Texas. But I mean, it's really understandable for her, for those that are listening. I mean, when historians, writers have to focus, when they have so much good rich information, it's, it just becomes, as you mentioned, a lot, right, to, to come together, um, unwielding. And so it's totally normal um, that, that it happens. And you're right. I mean, focusing on one, on one area allowed you to talk about so many things um, to understand the history of Las Escuelitas. And I'm sure it's, it's a mirror, right, of other, of other histories out there. Um, you mentioned earlier, you, you started talking about Jovita Idad when you're writing a, a paper in grad school, but you, you, you include her in, in the book, in her family, and she's so well known as a, you know, a public intellectual and using her pen and her writings as a form of social justice and voicing for um, um, the rights of ethnic Mexicans in Texas. Can you tell us a little bit more about how her family was so instrumental in um, Las Escuelitas? Particularly, you talk about 1910 as a watershed moment um, for ethnic Mexicans and their relationship to education in the U.S. Yeah, so um, by the time you get to 1910, um, the Mexican press, and I mean in Mexico, I don't mean the Spanish language press in Texas. So there was a a number of members of the Mexican press in Mexico who were writing about the exclusion of Mexican children in the Texas public school system. And so I'll just back up and say, you know, we just talked about the superintendents and how their reports were incredibly, you know, racist and discriminatory, and that's in the late 19th century. Um, And by the time you get to 1903, um, like Seguin, which is a small town about 30, 35 miles east of San Antonio, like when you're on your way to Houston, um, there's evidence in those, in their school board reports that they were officially uh, segregating Mexican children and creating a Mexican school. And so um, uh, scholars, though, like Victoria McDonald, I think, recently wrote that, you know, she doesn't think that's necessarily the first the first incidence of, you know, segregation and previous scholars have have argued that, but that it that it was. But the point that the larger point that I'm trying to make here is that you you have evidence that official segregation is taking place by 1903, right? It might be happening earlier. It might not be. Um, and, and, and when I say might not be, I mean, like, where you find official documentation, because, of course, things happen and people aren't just making note of it, right? Um, so by 1910, though, you have members of the Mexican press in Mexico writing about the exclusion of Mexican children in the Texas public school system. And so the Mexican ambassador in Washington, D.C., he wrote a letter to the Mexican consul in Laredo and asked him to conduct an investigation, you know, into these allegations. Are these true? Um, and so the Mexican consul in Laredo, he carried out this investigation um, that he was under orders to do. But there were only three counties in his district, right? Webb, Zapata, and Duval counties. And all of these counties are deep in South Texas, and they all have large ethnic Mexican, like, you know, majority ethnic Mexican populations. Um, So when he conducted this investigation, he found that, uh, and I think this is really interesting, he found that 
ethnic um, that the schools, public schools, did not exclude ethnic Mexican children. That if they were segregated, like in the Mexican schools or the Mexican ward school, as a lot of them were called, it was because and only because they didn't speak English. Um, but that even in this case, the public schools hired specialists to teach the children English. Like these specialists also knew Spanish. Like the, the public schools were hiring these bilingual specialists, basically. Um, and that they treated the children and their families with respect. And so, I mean, keep in mind, though, he's also only referring to the three counties in his district. And where the problem, I mean, I think there's some problems with his report, but the bigger problem took place um, when the Mexican government decided to publish the findings of this report and then say that it applied to all of Texas, right? That we have evidence from this official report that was done that public schools in Texas are not excluding Mexican children. And in the cases where they are being segregated, it's only because they don't speak English and they're trying to help these kids. Um, and so that's where you enter the Idar family. Uh, as I noted earlier, that the Idar family published La Cronica from 1910 to 1914. You know, they lived in Laredo. The paper was based in Laredo. And they published several articles from late 1910 um, to early 1911, speaking to this whole issue, right? First, they did not agree with the Laredo Consul's assessment of ethnic Mexican education in South Texas. Um, you know, Clemente Idad, he was Jovita Idad's brother. Uh, he wrote a lot of these articles. Um, he didn't think that segregation based on language was just. It, he didn't think it was fair. He didn't think it was necessary, right? In um, one article that I'm thinking about in particular, he, he said, like, there's no rule that says that the kids have to know English by the time they enter, right? So why are you, why are you excluding them for something that, like, they're not doing anything wrong? Um, secondly, La Cronica was, and the Idar family, um, they were outraged that the Mexican government tried to use this report that was focused on three counties in South Texas to explain events that were taking place, um, you know, to explain the goings on in terms of me ethnic Mexican education throughout the state of Texas. And so, you know, they published a questionnaire in La Cronica and they asked their readers, like, please fill this out and please send it back. And the questionnaire, it had, it had questions on there like, you know, how many kids do you have? Uh, what are their ages? What schools do they go to? Do they attend... Um, a Mexican private school, like an escuelita? Do they attend the public school? Do they attend both? Um, do you all pay taxes? Um, and according to like some of the articles they wrote, they were receiving responses from their readership. I never found any of these responses in my research. So either they don't exist, which is highly likely, or they're sitting in an attic or some like long lost place that hopefully they will emerge at some point in the future. Um, so a number of their readers, they sent back these questionnaires, but they also, um, they also wrote letters to the kind of like a letter to the editor type of thing, detailing the racism and the exclusion that their children and, and they themselves experienced in the public school system, like gave like detailed stories about what they had been through. And a number of them said, I'm writing this letter to convince the Mexican consulate that what they're trying to say is not true. Um, and so all of this then ended up convincing the Mexican consulate to reopen the investigation. And so they had working with um, Nicasio Edad, who was the father of Clemente and Jovita, Jovita um, had, they, they came up with like a plan of action and how to move forward with this investigation. But by early 1911, the Mexican Revolution was in its full chaotic swing, and the investigation closed quite abruptly. And so then six, seven months later, in September of 1911, the Idar family organized the first Mexican Congress, El Primer Congreso Mexicanista. 
I love how that transition, um, because we, as you mentioned, you're in all this is at the throes of the Mexican Revolution, starting in 1910, and how this is going on. But can you tell us a little bit about how um, Jovita Idad and um, was Maria Villarreal y Leonor Villegas uh, de Magnon and Maria Renteria continued this fight, right? It didn't just stop. Although it stopped with the investigation, women now are engaging in feminist acts to kind of push back against um, the racialized, the racially charged um, uh, stereotypes of ethnic Mexicans in Las Escuelitas. Can you tell us a little bit more about how feminism is now shaping early childhood education? Yeah, so um, during El Primer Congreso Mexicanista, um, there's a group of ethnic Mexican women and they get together and they organize what they call La Liga Femenil Mexicanista or the Mexican Women's League. Um, and at the top of their agenda is they want to do something about like the rampant poverty and illiteracy that, that they see across their Laredo communities. Um, and so I focus on four women, as you noted, right? Jovitidad, who's uh, Clementa's sister, Nicasio's daughter, uh, Maria Renteria, Leonor Villegas de Magnon, and Maria Villarreal. Uh, but there's evidence that there were many more women doing, doing similar work, either inside or outside La Liga uh, Femenil Mexicanista. And there were a few of them that I uh, tried to kind of pursue in my research, but it was, I, you know, there were so many dead ends. Um, but these were the four women that I could find the most information on. So I framed the chapter around them, their lives and their work. Um, and so one of the things these women do as members of La Liga is they founded their own escuelitas um, as a way to take charge of their children's education during this moment, right? During this moment when neither country really seemed to care about their children's future, or their children's education, right? You have the Texas public school system and segregation and racism and Americanization policies are really at the forefront by the time you get to the 1910s. Um, and then you have the Mexican government who may or may not care, but they're really kind of involved with the Mexican revolution. So at, at that point in time, they weren't doing anything. Um, so as these women are taking charge of the education of their community's children, um, they're also taking on these roles of being both, and I call the chapter revolutionary and refined, but they're taking on these roles of being these women who are revolutionary and refined, right? They're all feminists, they're all educated, um, and they want to look to education as a way to lift up their community. Um, and a lot of the work that they're doing is influenced by the Mexican revolution, right? So you have the creation of La Cruz Blanca, which uh, Magnon uh, founds in 1914. Um, and Idad and Jovita Idad and Maria Villarreal all are part of this movement. La Cruz Blanca, they all work as nurses. Um, Maria Renteria, she wrote uh, women's history, but she focused on the different roles that women played during the first Mexican revolution, like the war for Mexican independence like feminine and masculine roles that women were able to play to, to have a real impact on the trajectory of their future country, right? And so I felt like she was really using that historical narrative to make a statement about the work that women um, were doing in her time in the midst of that soup, that, you know, um, really chaotic moment, right? Of you have Texas uh, segregation and, and um, racism and discrimination within the public school system. And then you have this violent chaos of the, of the Mexican revolution. I really enjoyed reading this chapter because it really gives insight into, I mean, as you mentioned, although you focused on four women, there's a lot of more women. It's, it's how, and I said this earlier, it's how they're continuing the fight, right? Against racial, economic, and political discrimination of, of, ethnic Mexicans in Texas. And what was so new to me is that I'm, I'm well aware of that, but of how she's used her um, intellectual power to create change. But 
how also she was a member of Las Escuelitas, like not a member, a teacher of Las Escuelitas. Um, and what role she took on that with her colleagues, right? Her female colleagues of this time. What was also striking to me and learning more about when we get into the 1920s and, and through half through half of the 20th century to the 1950s is this another change, right? There's another break happening. And you and you mentioned about the formation of LULAC and American GI Forum. And many of these individuals are were were attended Las Escuelitas, am I correct? Like that's you give this history. But there's a little bit more about how their their training and their their knowledge of Las Escuelitas kind of breaks with what they later fight for um, in the throughout the 1920s to 1950s. Can you t- talk a little bit more about how this generation, Mexican American generation, um, affected Las Escuelitas? The history of this. Yeah. So. Um... One of the things that I was really, I wasn't expecting when I was pursuing the research was that a number of um, individuals that we associate with this Mexican-American generation, that they themselves had attended Escuelitas when they were young. And yet they grew up to, to fight for, you know, like English only and citizenship requirements within LULAC, um, integration, right? Um, and I think on the surface, it might seem counterintuitive to what they, you know, to their childhood, right? To what they had learned in these, in these escuelitas with this Spanish, um, like always being the language of instruction and this Mexican-centric curriculum. But the way I interpreted it was um, that it, it actually is not. They, they, weren't in, they weren't going against, you know, what they had learned in their childhood, but that their experience in the Escuelitas provided them with um, such a rich like foundation of their language and their culture that, you know, it provides like this level of confidence when you're pursuing um, civil rights and you're, you're pursuing it um, in, from this like integrate integration standpoint. Um, And so I argue that, there were kind of two main groups within the larger uh, Mexican-American generation, right? One that was more progressive um, and one that was more conservative. And that both of them, like there's people who attend Escuelitas in both camps, right? But both of them draw from this Escuelita tradition, but they're drawing from it in different ways, right? That you have one group that um, they're all about, I mean, both groups are all about integration and, and all of that stuff. But one group is taking the curriculum of the Escuelitas and and really pushing hard to integrate that curriculum, that kind of me- me- that different perspective, that ethnic Mexican perspective, and to integrate it into the dominant master narrative. Right. So the dominant master narrative is more um, reflective of the student population, right, of the population of the state, and then you have another kind of faction within this Mexican-American generation where um, they're not really so much interested in integrating the curriculum, but they draw from the Escuelita model to create these kind of alternative little school type spaces outside the public school system to teach um, ethnic Mexican children English. Absolutely. On that part, and what was really striking me, and as I mentioned earlier, is that um, Hector Pierce and, and his sister Cleo, right? They're mm-hmm. they're part of Las Escuelitas, but also how their knowledge of Las Escuelitas being growing up in, into it also shapes their civil rights activism, and that's so. And I think that's why I, I enjoy asking the, the early when I speak with authors, asking about their early background, right? Because that shapes their knowledge of of how they interact with the world as adults, right? Um, I have a question. Um, so how do we make sense of this history of Las Escuelitas of in the present day, currently with the, I know here in Texas, we, um, for, for over 10 years, I mean, there was a the fight for ethnic studies in K through 12. And a lot of scholars um, in Austin, at UT Austin, were part of this fight for this integration 
not integration, inclusion, right, of ethnic studies in K through 12. So how do we come to understand with your work um, today's understanding regarding ethnic studies in K through 12? Yeah, so I argue that uh, the Escuelitas were the first space where a narrative from an ethnic Mexican perspective emerged, right? It was the first uh, space where that narrative was developed and sustained. Um, And throughout the book, uh, I examined the work of various historical figures who are relevant to Escuelita history, right? And from that, you can see how over time, ideas about where those narratives belong, it changes, right? From thriving in the Escuelitas, right? Which I refer to as these decolonized spaces in the margins. Um, so from thriving in the Escuelitas to advocating, um, integrating them into the public school system, right? And I think about how if the Escuelitas are this decolonized space, then how that can influence in a positive way um, the center, right? The margin influencing the center. Um, But though these narratives once thrived in Escuelitas and are currently thriving in ethnic studies, um, they have yet to impact the master narrative, right? So we still have kids who that they're being taught that the war with Mexico in the 1840s was the United States defending itself against this aggressive bully, that the Civil War was really about states' rights and it was not about slavery. And if slavery had anything to do with it, then it was really just a minor little footnote, right? Um, that the closing of the frontier by by 1890 is always framed as the winning of the West, right? The glory, so to speak, of Manifest Destiny. and. Ethnic studies is centered on completely different interpretations of these major historical developments. So these narratives, like what is taught, this kind of master narrative, so to speak, and the ethnic studies type narratives, these narratives exist in opposition of each other. And so um, I really believe a more accurate master narrative, right, um, will not only help everybody who, who uh, learns that narrative understand why ethnic studies is relevant, but why it's necessary. If that makes sense. Oh, it does. It, do- it does. And I totally see um, your work. I mean, it's, it's placing, it's not placing, but it's contributing to this long history of what community activism and civil rights engagement can do to, um, to help ethnic communities, right? Giving this history, it gives it, it gives empowerment, right? For those wanting to learn what others have done before to make sure that cold, that culture is part of one's daily lives, children's daily lives. As you know, as you write about, you know, why Escuelitas was so important. It's because it's shaping, it's shaping the education of children and how they continued on and who are the makers of this, of this, of this history. So it totally makes sense. Um, so I have, we're nearing the end of the interview and I have one last question for you. What projects are you working on now? So um, when I was working on the dissertation, uh, when I was researching and writing chapter four, um, I came across these two brothers, the Vasquez brothers, who were you know, born in Texas and they ended up be- both becoming members of the Mexican consulate. And both of them in their own ways supported Escuelitas. And so I was researching them, trying to figure out, you know, trying to uncover anything I could about their personal lives and what may have influenced them to join the Mexican consulate and things like that. And then I came across this investigation that one of them in particular had been leading in the mid-1920s. And so what had happened was there was a man named Tomas Nunez and two of his sons and two of his nephews um, who had been murdered uh, by the sheriff and some of his men in Raymondville in Willacy County in South Texas. And the, the sheriff had gone on trial and had been found not guilty for, for killing these people. And so the Mexican consulate then, uh, launched this investigation. They exhumed Tomas Nunez's body to try to see if he actually had been tortured and decapitated, the way rumors had said. Um, 
And I spent maybe like two weeks of precious, precious dissertation writing time, uh, researching, translating the articles that I found. Um, and after about two weeks, I had to, you know, be really honest with myself that this wasn't relevant to Escuelitas, that I had, I had basically totally um, gone down a, a rabbit hole. So I promised myself that once the book was out, that I was going to revisit this project. And so that's, I am trying to make good on that promise. So I'm not sure if it's going to be an article or if it's going to be a book. It just depends on um, how much, you know, source material and information I find. Absolutely. And it's quite common. I mean, I know um, when I was doing my writing my dissertation, you get into so many rabbit holes because it's so exciting to find other stories that come about from your research. Um, but I really, I really encourage you to make sure you get the, this, this new study done, um, whether it's an article or a book. And I know right now we're kind of halted with archival research, but whatever you can get done, don't, don't leave this project behind because it seems like it's something that's really important to you. Um, and it's, it's, it's exciting. Sorry, I just mumbled on that word. Um, but thank you so much, Phyllis, for sharing your time with us and for those listening um, to talk about your work. And so for those listening, I just want to say thank you again for listening to this episode, which featured Dr. Baragan Getz, her recent book, Reading, Writing, and Revolution, Escuelitas in the Emergence of a Mexican-American, Mexican-American Identity, published with the University of Texas Press in 2020. I encourage you to buy her book and keep an eye out for more of her work in the years to come. And if you want to send me a message, you can find me on Twitter. Thanks for listening. Hasta la próxima.